A quick note to listeners. This episode contains explicit violence, so if you're around young children, especially young children who love fuzzy animals, you might want to put on some headphones. And there are no rules. There are no laws. I think part of understanding the sheep and cattle wars is this is raw capitalism uh, at its worst, where you are actually deeply competing for resources and who wins that competition is often decided by guns and gunfire. Today's episode is about the Wild West and the Wild West, Old West, American West, whatever you want to call it, is this mythic place. The land of wide open spaces, Wyatt Earp and Calamity Jane, cattle drives and cowboys. Shove the myth aside, though. The American West was a place of constant violent conflict, where, aside from the mass genocide we inflicted on Native populations, one of the most drawn out of these conflicts were the so-called range wars. And this is where cattlemen and sheepmen fought over land and water, dozens of sheep herders were murdered, and up to 100,000 sheep were slaughtered, all before a Colorado congressman ended the violence in 1934. And it's a place where, 50 years later, the descendants of those sheepmen, some of them, anyways, had the last laugh. This is Fiber Nation, tales of textiles, craft, and culture, and I'm your host, Alison Korleski. In our minds, and a lot of movies, Cowboys are taciturn, honorable, often chivalrous individuals. They stand up for the underdog. They take on crooked sheriffs. They almost always look like Clint Eastwood and sound like Sam Elliott. Sorry, Mayor, but you're barking up the wrong tree. But the real West was not some cliched Western. Cowboys often behave more like criminals than heroes. And this is certainly the case in the Western Range Wars. My name is Andrew Gulliford. I'm a professor of history at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado. Andy is the author of The Woolly West, Colorado's Hidden History of Sheepscapes. It is a fascinating book, whether you're a fiber geek or Western history buff. And we have a link in our show notes page. Well, you know, let me just begin by saying that of the hundreds of books written about cowboys and cowboying in the American West, there are very few volumes on sheep and sheepmen. So cowboys get all the movies, they get the songs, they get to sing to their cows and ride the long circle each night around their herd. In other words, we made cowboys into this American icon. But here's the thing. Cowboys, along with their cattle, are not native to the Americas, neither are sheep for that matter. Spanish brought both up through Mexico in the 1500s. Cattle mostly went to Texas, sheep mostly went to what would become New Mexico, but herds overlapped and spread throughout the West. These original sheep were Spanish churros, that's a so-called primitive breed, with a long double coat and often four horns. Early Hispano ranchers made a lot of money off of them from the very start. So, first we have the explorers, the conquistadors. Santa Fe is founded in 1610. Uh, very early on, there are ricos, or rich men. And they understand the opportunities with sheep and fleece and wool and weaving and mutton. But the real takeoff point is the California gold rush in 1849. James Marshall had discovered gold at Sutter's Mill in 1848. 
Kit Carson, the famous frontiersman, mountain men, and butcher of Native peoples, brought news of that discovery back to Washington in 1849, and 300,000 people headed west to make their fortunes. The California boomtowns were short of just about everything, and the Mexican sheepmen saw a huge market opportunity. They moved hundreds of thousands of sheep across the Mojave Desert or up through the mountains of Colorado, Utah, and Nevada. And in fact, that same Kit Carson also cashed in, driving 6,500 of his own sheep to Sacramento. Andy tells me it's probably the only time Carson ever made any money, despite all his fame. And that's because the profit on sheep was extraordinary. If a sheep was worth, say, you know, 50 cents in New Mexico, when you got it to Sacramento, it could be sold for between 12 and $18. And that cash, in gold, made those Ricos even richer, expanding into true empires. By 1880, 20 families owned most of the sheep in New Mexico territory, some 3 million animals. But those riches came with a steep cost. The arid desert or semi-desert landscape that we associate with the American West, that wasn't really the case until the sheep and cattle moved in. All we have to do is look at the journals of the fur traders and the fur trappers. So as those Americans are moving through the American West, they are encountering, even in Arizona, landscapes of grass that are belly high to a horse and wetlands and plants and cattails and things that are completely gone today where there may only be dry arroyos and, uh, you know, washed out areas for miles. There were deep, deep grasses. And it's the cattle and sheep coming into the American West doing the most damage by the 1890s that really have an impact. Because if you are moving sheep slowly so that they don't lose weight, uh, they're eating a whole lot of grass. And you do that time and time and time again, and there's no grass left. The, the, the cattlemen would always tell you that sheep are really the worst. But in my research and looking both at, at cattle and sheep grazing patterns and historical journals and diaries, it's really about the same damage the, the real question is how long are animals allowed to stay in the same place? So if you've got lazy sheep herders or lazy cowboys and they're not moving the herd, you get a lot of damage. The range wars properly began around the late 1880s, and they were just part of a decades-long competition in the American West over land and resources. The arc of that conflict began much earlier, Sheep and cattle were expanding into all the Western territories, but they weren't the only ones moving in. So that arc begins in 1862. The Civil War is occurring. Republicans are in power. Republicans want to develop the American West. They pass two very important laws in 1862. One is the Homestead Act, and one is the Transcontinental Railroad Act. The Homestead Act is an amazing piece of legislation and what's amazing about it is it said any head of household could go out on the public domain and claim 160 acres. What's amazing about that is it doesn't say you have to be a white male. You don't even have to be a U.S. citizen. Uh, you just have to be a head of household. So it's an extraordinary law. And thousands of Europeans will come to America Initially, these homesteaders were more irritants than threats, particularly to cattlemen who could be a little aggressive. So you get these tiny little patches of private property 
in a sea of grass, in a sea of public land, and the cattlemen are loath to give up. And if you take, you know, a couple, 3,000 cattle and you run them across a landscape and a homesteader is there with a fenced garden and his own two or three cows, believe me, they sweep through, they knock down the fences, they gather up all the other livestock and head towards the railroads. And the railroads play a key role. So in that same year of 1862, the Transcontinental Railroad Act is passed. This funded the building of a 1,900-mile-long railway. By 1869, it reached the Pacific Coast. And the railroad was a financial boon to sheep and cattle ranchers alike because American cities were clamoring for fresh meat. So in order to have really successful big cattle herds, as well as uh, sheep flocks, you need a way to ship them to market. And the railroads provide that. So after the Civil War, then you have competition for land and then the movement, the need to move your livestock to railheads. And as the railroads are being built and they move west, that line of where you intersect the railroad continues to go west. Keep moving, 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 though they're disapproving. Keep them doggies moving, This is the golden age of the cowboy who drove upwards of 5 million cattle to railroad stockyards and meatpacking plants from Chicago to Cheyenne. And while cowboys and cattlemen are the villains in the story, the life of a cowboy, it was not easy. A lot of them came from Texas, since that's where the cows were. The state's Confederate cash was worthless after the Civil War, but many cattle owners lived back east. Cowboys were just cheap local labor, desperate for a paycheck. Twelve men would drive maybe two to 3,000 cattle, and the work was boring when they were just trailing the herd for days on end, but brutal when they had to trail it through a two- or three-day blizzard. And it could become extremely dangerous at any point, what with cattle thieves, river crossings, stampedes. Moving cattle through alkali flats meant handling big animals driven mad by thirst. The pay was low, maybe 25 to $40 a month, so it's really no surprise that many cowboys had enough after just one drive. And while the big cattle drives were going on, you also had sheep herders moving their flocks to the same depots. Sheep bands could be three to 7,000 sheep, and they might need trails more than 10 miles wide to move around. And since you had all these animals moving slowly in completely different patterns over much of the same ground that was being eaten bare, things started to get nasty. By the 1880s, it had gone from name-calling and threats to driving off or killing entire flocks to shooting at the sheep herders themselves. Now, this violence wasn't just about access to grass and water. It was also this existential dispute about the people who owned and ran the livestock. Remember, sheep owners initially tended to be wealthy Hispano families in the New Mexican territory. New Mexico itself wouldn't even be a state until 1912. Texas cattle country, though, was definitely part of the U.S., even if it had tried to secede during the Civil War. And cattle owners, again, were often wealthy investors from the East Coast or even Britain. By the mid-1800s, owning and raising cattle was definitely an American thing and almost aristocratic. Sheep raising? Not so much. Part of it depends on the ethnicity of the herders. So, yes, there's the phrase cattle baron. You'll never hear the phrase sheep baron. Hispanos were not the only sheepmen. You also had Greek and Basque immigrants running sheep farther north. But all were viewed as foreign interlopers, 
bringing in their damn sheep and taking graze and water from true American ranchers. Texas cattlemen started calling sheep range maggots, and the distaste was for more than the animals. Coming up after the break, peaches, bloodshed, and dynamite. We're back, and Andy is telling me about the bias sheep and Hispano sheepmen faced, and how that bias extended to anyone who worked with sheep. Even if you were an upstanding citizen, if you had, you know, sheep shit on your cowboy boots, uh, you had no status. But here's the thing. Sheep were a lot more profitable than cattle. And of course, the secret is, this is extremely important, by 1890, if you've got a range-raised steer and you're getting ready to ship him to market, that takes three years. If you're a sheep man, in three years, you've had six paychecks because you've had lamb crops, you've had wool crops. So the sheep men are reviled, they're hated, and they're rich. And I wonder if this contributed, at least in part, to the violence. Not only were foreign sheepmen, many were actually U.S. citizens, taking resources from cattle, they had the gall to make a lot more money doing it. Even when you weren't driving big herds to the railways, very few ranchers owned the land they grazed on. It was public land. And if you look at a flat map of the West, it seems like there's plenty to go around. But that land wasn't always in the right place. But in our high country in Colorado, that's where the sheep went. They went, in some cases, up to even 12,000 feet in elevation, and cattle would never do that. Cattle rarely went above 8,000 feet because they weren't used to the altitude. They couldn't handle the plants. So sheep had to pass through the cattle domains, and that creates its own problems. But the real difficulties were winter grazing areas. Sheep might graze at these higher elevations during the summer, but they needed to come down before the heavy snows began. So when both cattle and sheep are at lower elevation, that's where the strife occurred, and that's where the cattle and sheep wars really were at their worst. I think in, in central Colorado, the real impact is the boomtown of Leadville, which by 1879 has 5,000 people It rivals Denver as a potential capital for the territory of Colorado. And so there's, again, just like as in California, there's a huge need for meat and food. And the cattlemen try to provide that, but so do the sheepmen. And so that's a conflict at just simply at the marketplace. But there is a lot of racism, uh, a lot of uh, just foul language and foul attitudes by Texas cowboys against Hispanic herders. These sheepmen had been in Colorado long before the Texas cattlemen. They just didn't seem American enough. So the New Mexicans have come north up the San Luis Valley long before Colorado statehood, which was 1876. And they brought their sheep and they brought their families and their culture and their language and their architecture, which is adobe houses, uh, low, flat, well-adjusted to the landscape. And uh, they're thriving in the San Luis Valley. And then as the mines pick up the silver and gold mines in Colorado, and there's more of a market for meat, then after the Civil War, Texas herds come through Colorado, Texas cowboys, and they think nothing of shooting at sheep, killing sheep, running sheep off cliffs. 
and uh, harassing herders to the point of uh, sometimes killing them. This practice of running sheep off cliffs became so common it even had its own name, rimrocking. 3,800 sheep were driven off a cliff in western Colorado, while 12,000 sheep were killed in a single night in Wyoming. Uh, very rarely did you waste bullets. They, they found other ways to kill sheep, including dynamite. Sheep might be poisoned or kept away from water to die of thirst. And by the late 1800s, open public land was getting smaller. Barbed wire had made its way out west. Homesteaders used it to keep other livestock from crashing through their property, and so did the ranchers who actually owned land, especially if that land had water. The West was becoming this patchwork of public and private areas, and sheepmen and cattlemen had more and more violent clashes over who could graze where. A particularly ugly event happened in 1894. A sheep owner named John Holbert went into the town of Parachute, Colorado, for its annual Peach Day celebration. While he was in town, local cattle owners sent 40 men to kill his 3,000 sheep. When they couldn't drive the sheep off a cliff, they rounded them up and beat them to death. Now I want you to take a second and think about how long it would have taken those 40 men to do that. In some cases, they simply broke the sheep's legs, leaving them for wolves and coyotes. This financially destroyed Hulbert. While many local residents were appalled and the governor even offered a reward, neither the men who killed the sheep nor the ranchers that hired them were ever held accountable. And you might notice that Hulbert is not a Hispano name. This kind of animosity extended to all sheep owners. And by this point, more people were getting into sheep just because they were so profitable. But you can't ignore the racist and xenophobic overtones of so many conflicts. In 1892, a sheepman named Juan Montoya, along with his brothers and some other men, were leading 20,000 sheep near Pagosa Springs in Colorado. This was cattle country, and the men carried Winchester rifles because being on shared public land was no protection. And so the Montoyas are aware of the dangers, but they're also just sheepmen. They're trying to move their sheep along the river and get them into grasses. But to do this, they have to drive them by the farmhouse of William Howe, the county commissioner and an established cattleman. He had just lost his wife and son in childbirth, and he is half crazed with grief. And all of a sudden, he looks out his ranch window, and the, the house is still there, uh, right at the base of Wolf Creek Pass. And he sees all these sheep coming down along the San Juan River. And he says to some friends who are there, you know, by God, I'm going to teach those Mexicans a lesson. When in fact, they're not Mexicans, they're, they're Coloradans and have been in Colorado for over 100 years. But he says, I'm going to teach those Mexicans a lesson, saddles up, rides out towards the sheep, towards the sheep herders and starts shooting. While the young Montoya, Juan Montoya, is wounded in the shoulder and manages to stay his horse, withdraw his own Winchester and fire and shoots the Archuleta County commissioner fatally. And the commissioner dies that night. And that starts an incredible reaction. And there could have been a lynching under other circumstances. Uh, the sheriff comes out and Montoya is arrested for murder. Montoya's family does everything they can to save their son. Somehow, they get the trial moved to a different county. They spend a ton of money paying for lawyers and getting witnesses to come forward and testify that Howe shot first. And it worked. 
Because while public opinion and the local papers squarely blame Montoya for Howe's death, a jury finds him innocent, saying he acted in self-defense. But it cost the family their fortune. And they had worked so hard for that money as sheepmen and as sheepherders. But they got justice. And in all my research on the Woolly West, across the American West, this is the only account I've been able to determine of a Hispanic herder and Hispanic family uh, getting, getting justice. But there was still blowback. The shooting took place in Archuleta County. So Archuleta County, the county seat is Pagosa Springs. And there was a mercantile store uh, run by the Archuleta family. And it was then burned to the ground three consecutive times. They had to rebuild it and it was burned again. So that was generalized racism and hatred against Hispanics in a county named for a prominent Hispanic family. And, um, you know, that's part of the history of the West that we need to understand. The violence was now directed at the herders, not just the sheep. There's a sheep herder in Wyoming. Who was literally strung up on a wagon tongue. So if you take a wagon, a wooden wagon tongue and you prop it up, it's about 10 to 12 feet. They hang him from a wagon tongue. And when his own tongue starts to turn blue and his face turns red, they lower him, but they're trying to get him to move his sheep. And there are times when the violence is so extreme that the newspapers and the public has to revile the cattlemen. And that happened in Rio Blanco County. Cattlemen show up in the dark right before dawn, and they're making a commotion. The herder is asleep in his sheep wagon. He hears the noise, and then he makes a fatal mistake. He lights a kerosene lamp. So you can see his shadow. You can see his outline, and he's easy to shoot and kill. And, and the newspapers couldn't, couldn't excuse that. And there is an investigation there, U.S. Marshals. I don't think anyone is convicted, but that level of violence simply can't be tolerated. And eventually, people were held accountable. In 1901, a hired gunman named Tom Horn stalked and killed the 14-year-old son of homesteaders who had dared to bring in sheep. He later boasted to the sheriff that it was, quote, the best shot he ever made and the dirtiest trick he'd ever done. Though several local cattlemen, presumably the ones who hired him, paid for his defense, he was found guilty and hanged. You might have noticed something here. These new murders that finally changed public opinion of cattlemen, most of the victims were white. And again, that's because more and more non-Hispanos were raising sheep. But a final incident shows how race was still an issue. A wealthy sheepman named Teofilo Trujillo had run his flocks in western Colorado for decades. Teofilo Trujillo comes north from New Mexico into the San Luis Valley, prospers, has a large family, uh, builds a large adobe house, has stained glass in the house, doesn't trust banks, keeps his money in his house. And as the cattlemen start to come through competing for the same market in Leadville, uh, his son worries about their sheep and worries about what's going to happen. And the sheepmen are harassed. The sheep herders are harassed. Their tents are shot at, uh, shot through, uh, sometimes burned when they're out. The sheep are driven off cliffs or clubbed to death. 
By the 1880s, a family of cattlemen were outright demanding his range. They'd already forced other Hispano sheepmen off the land, but while they killed some of his sheep, Trujillo was determined to remain. In 1902, men attacked his flocks again, and this time they killed 30 sheep and fired directly at the herders. That was the final straw for Trujillo. After all, he had been an American citizen since 1848. And as an American citizen, he believes in American justice. He's taken the oath of citizenship. He believes strongly in his new home in Colorado. And so as these depredations continue, he decides to go to the law. He, de- he goes to the county sheriff and reluctantly, and this is important too, is the violence was not only in the sheep camps and out in the mountains, it was also in court where you couldn't get a jury, you couldn't get a judge, you couldn't get a sheriff to do anything. And Mr. Trujillo goes forward, says, I want justice. And so some of these cowboys are brought to justice and they're in the courtroom, they're, they're smirking, they're lounging around. Uh, they don't feel in any way that their guilt will be proven. And they're right. Trujillo loses the case. But they're smirking for another reason, too. And on that day, when Mr. Trujillo is in the courtroom with his family, taking up the two front rows of seats in the courtroom, and as his lawyer is making the case for these damages done to Mr. Trujillo's sheep, cowboys are firebombing his ranch, and they are burning his house to the ground. When he gets home that night, he comes home to smoldering ruins. 40 years of work, hard work, and cash is gone. The stained glass is broken. His house is demolished. And his son says, Dad, I I told you so. But it's what the son does next that's so interesting. The son switches to cattle and then builds a little two-story log house on the outside. So he looks like he's an Anglo rancher. He has cattle. uh, He lives in a log house. And the house is still there. It's now a National Historic Landmark. But the inside was covered with adobe. So he's living one life outside his house and then a traditional Hispanic life inside the house so that that house on the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve is now a National Historic Landmark so that story can be told and remembered again and again of the absolute racism that Hispanic herders from New Mexico and Hispanic families from New Mexico faced against Colorado cattlemen. By the 1900s, lines are really blurred. Sheepmen turn to cattle because it's safer. Some cattlemen turn to sheep because it's more profitable. But violence continues for a few more decades. World War I is 1914, and all of a sudden, there's a desperate need for wool, for uniforms, meat for soldiers, and the competition intensifies. So the other thing about the cattle and sheep wars that's not understood is how late they last. I mean, they go all the way up all the way up into the 1930s. What finally ended the wars were a mix of economic depression, governmental desperation, and probably sheer exhaustion on all sides. So there's a big market for wheat and wool and meat. So the competition for the landscape intensifies. Then there's a slump in the 1920s. 
And then, boom, you've got the Great Depression after 1929, and markets really skid and slide. And all of a sudden, cattle aren't worth anything, sheep aren't worth anything. And in that sort of hiatus, finally, Congressman uh, Edward T. Taylor from Glenwood Springs, Colorado, decides it's time for a national solution. States have tried, including the Colorado State Legislature, has tried to come up with some sort of compromise. But, you know, a state has no jurisdiction over federal land. And these are federal lands that nobody wanted. Nobody was willing to homestead them. Nobody wanted to pay taxes on them. They were happy to abuse them and use them for grazing. And so Congressman Taylor says, all right, we're going to establish grazing districts. We're going to give allotments to ranchers. And so you will have a place to go with your livestock at a certain time of year. You can put your livestock on that land. You have to take it off at a certain time. And we will work this out between the sheepmen and the cattlemen. And it's successful. It ends the sheep and cattle wars. Now, the Taylor Grazing Act, as it was named, has this neat little feature called commensurability. That meant that for every acre of public land you leased, you needed to own the same amount of private land. And that changed the West for good. Now, all of a sudden, if you're going to put 10,000 sheep on public land, there's a time in which you have to put them on private land. So that makes a huge difference. And sheepmen then start buying property in places where they never would have thought about it before. So they will buy winter grazing ground near Moab, Utah. And in the mountain country, they will buy high altitude grass. Now remember, cattle can't graze as high as sheep. So for once, there's no competition. The families that stayed in sheep held on to this high altitude land and didn't think much about it. It was just pasture. Until the 1960s and 70s, when the next economic boom hit Colorado, and it wasn't sheep. Those are the bases for all of the Colorado ski areas. So the sheepmen wound up buying the base of Vail and Telluride and Snowmass and Aspen and Arapaho Basin. All of those were sheep meadows. And if the family hung on to that land long enough, they've done pretty well. After a hundred years of harassment, violence, and murder, I find it rather satisfying that the sheepmen, some of them at least, had the last laugh. Thank you for listening to Fiber Nation. If you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Your reviews help other people find us. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our co-producer and audio engineer is Daisha Clay, and Julia Pillard was our librarian for this episode. Fiber Nation is part of Interweave and Golden Peak Media, and our executive podcast producer is Jared Mayer.